0: If you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 14. As we continue in the Gospel of John this morning, we'll be in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. John chapter 14, verses 15 through 24. The Apostle John writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he records here the words of our Lord Jesus Christ If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see Me, but you will see Me, because I live You will live also. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened, that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now as we consider these verses this morning, we'll be doing so under two main headings. First of all, love for Jesus leads to obedience, and secondly, be encouraged by the promises. Love for Jesus leads to obedience. Be encouraged by the promises. Now, as we've already seen here in John chapter 14, Jesus is seeking to comfort the disciples. He had told them that he is going away, and where he was going, they could not come. Judas, he said, was going to betray him, and Judas had already gone out to do the deed. Peter, he said, was going to deny him, and they were still anticipating that denial. And the disciples were were no doubt unsettled by all of this and in need of comfort. And so he said to them at the beginning of the chapter, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come to receive you to myself. And he had told them, as we saw last week, that the same works which he had done, they would also do, and greater works because he was going to the Father. He had told them that he would answer the prayers which were made in his name. And this is how he comforts his disciples. Christ has a relationship with them, a relationship in which they trust him, a relationship in which he secures their eternal well-being, a relationship in which he strengthens them and answers their prayers. And implicit within all of this is the fact that Jesus does what he does for his disciples out of love for them. And in turn, this is a relationship in which Jesus' disciples love him. They love Jesus because Jesus first loved them. And their love will be shown by their deeds. Indeed, whenever someone loves someone or loves something, their love for that person or that object will be shown by their deeds. And so Jesus says here in verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This means that what we love will be shown by how we act. If we love the world and the passing pleasures of sin, we will show that by pursuing the world, its favor and its pleasures, and if we love Christ, we will show that by being obedient. And this is important for us to consider, because so often the world thinks of love simply as an infatuation or as an emotional attachment. Now, no doubt love does involve feelings, but it involves much more than feelings. Love has been, I think, helpfully defined as that affection or motion of the will, whereby it is inclined to a person by reason of some excellence or agreeableness or goodness, which we think or apprehend to be in him. It's this affection of the will. We see something that's excellent or agreeable, and we're inclined to this person, to, to love them. And then that affection or motion of the will will be shown in practical terms. And if those practical realities do not follow the profession of love, then the only real conclusion that we can reach is that the love is not real, but only imaginary. And so, for instance, if I were to say that I love my father, but I did not honor him in any perceptible way, if I never wanted to see him, never spoke of him, or if when I did speak of him I spoke in contemptible ways and hateful ways, you could conclude that despite what I say, I actually really don't love my father. If I were to say that I love my children and yet I never have anything nice to say about them, if I am continually rude to them and hurtful toward them, you might rightly conclude that despite me saying that I love my children, I actually do not love them. If I were to say that I love my wife and yet did not honor her, did nothing to care for her, did nothing to serve her, or never showed her any affection at all, and so on, you would rightly conclude that I actually do not love my wife, despite what I say. Even someone as mercenary as Delilah in the book of Judges seemed to, seemed to grasp this, at least in theory. She said to Samson, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? Samson kept on on lying to her about the secret of her strength, and she at least recognized that a profession of love ought to be accompanied by some kind of action. The point is, love is not merely an emotional feeling. It's not merely something that you say. It involves a resolution of the heart. that must say, this is someone I love, and therefore I will demonstrate that love by what I do. Now, in these words here, Jesus takes it for granted that his followers will love him. They will respond to his love by loving him in return. They will love him because he first loved them. The followers of Jesus are those, therefore, who recognize the truth of who Jesus is, and they recognize the loveliness of who he is and of what he has done for his people. They recognize, in other words, how good and agreeable and excellent Jesus is because he is the eternal Son of God, the one through whom all things were made, and yet also the one who humbled himself and became man in the fullness of time, being conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We recognize that Christ lived a sinless life, that he went about doing good, and then finally went to the cross, taking upon himself the punishment for our sins. And then he rose from the dead conquering both death and the grave, and also Satan as well. This is how Christ has loved us. And this, then, is why we love him. Christ's people have had their hearts open to the truth of the loveliness of what Christ has done for them, and therefore we love him, and we commit ourselves to Christ in love, and then we demonstrate that love practically in our lives. And the practical shape that love assumes is obedience to Christ. We read in 1 John 5.3 that this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. And even here in John 14, Jesus returns to this issue of obedience over and over. He says, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and we will come to him, and, uh, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. And then in verses 23 and 24, he speaks in the same way and also contrasts it with the opposite. He said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He who does not love me does not keep my words. I think think the point is pretty clear. Love for Christ and obedience to him cannot be separated. Now, we've already spoken somewhat of why we ought to love Christ, who he is, what he has done for us, and we grasp these realities, though, through faith. God has revealed to us the truth concerning Christ by his word, and he has applied that truth to us by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter says, First 1 Peter 1, 1.8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We've not seen Christ face to face but through faith in God's revealed word concerning Christ we arrive at the true knowledge of Jesus by the working of the Holy Spirit applying the truth convicting us of its truth and applying it to our heart and therefore we see Christ as lovely by faith and we love him and then are compelled to obey him and those who believe are those whose lives have been changed by Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. Our hearts have been made new. And now, being made new, we love what he loves. We hate what he hates. And if not perfectly and completely, at least the process has been started. Our conformity to the image of Christ. At our conversion, the decisive shift takes place. And then, over time, the Spirit works more and more to conform us to the image of Christ as our loves and hates more align with His. And this is why John can say keeping the commandments of God is not burdensome. It is because we recognize that His commands are good. They are good in themselves, and obeying them is actually good for us. To disobey His commands is to bring death and destruction to ourselves. And therefore, Paul can say at the end of Romans 6, uh, six twenty-one and 22, Therefore, What benefit were you then uh, deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. And so then, the obvious question for all of us who claim to belong to Christ, for all of us who claim to follow Him, to love Him, is simply this. Are you loving him? Are you obeying him? Are you keeping his word? I hope so. But if we're planning to do so, we need to acknowledge up front that we better buckle up and be ready because the word of Christ will be opposed. We have great enemies in this world. The word of Christ stands opposed to the natural desires of the flesh. We have to give them up if we want to love and serve Christ. Because living in accordance with the desires of the flesh is completely incompatible with following after Christ. And so we read in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The lust of the flesh will incline us toward some of those things. And different ones of us are sinfully given toward different sinful desires. But we must turn away from them all, both the actions and the desires alike. Because those who live like this, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. To live like this is to live in disobedience to Christ. Giving evidence, therefore, that we do not love Christ because we're not keeping his word. So, we have to buckle up and be ready because of the flesh. We also have to buckle up and be ready because the word of Christ always has been and always will be countercultural. It will be opposed by the world. Now, granted, there may be some cultures where what is valued by the culture and in the culture may be in greater alignment, at least to some degree, than with others. But even with that reality granted, Christians on this earth, as long as we're on this earth, have to recognize. There's going to be worldliness in the world. How's that for a surprise in a Sunday morning sermon? The world is going to be worldly. There's always going to be those of whom Paul described in Philippians 3 as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, whose minds are set on earthly things. And Peter says in 1 Peter 4.4 4, that these kind of people are going to be surprised that we do not run with them into the same world excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. You're going to be surprised that you don't join with them, and they're going to give you a hard time because you don't. There are always going to be worldlings in the world who set their mind on earthly things, who are enemies of the cross of Christ and who malign the people of God because they no longer pursue a path of sin. Such people are going to be quick to slander Christians as haters. This Happens in our day, for sure. I'm sure that's not a surprise to any of you here this morning. And this is nothing new. Indeed, the Roman historian Tacitus, when he was describing how Nero killed the Christians in the first century, he said that they were killed not so much for burning the city of Rome, which was the charge that was leveled against the Christians. He said that they were burned rather for their hatred of mankind. That's what the Romans thought. They thought these Christians are haters. And so they killed them. It's always going to be countercultural to follow Christ. It's going to earn you enemies. It's going to earn you slander. If it doesn't come against you personally, per se, it will at least be leveled against you generally and broadly because you're a Christian and Christians are going to be hated by the world. And why, you might ask, does this happen? Why does the world hate Christians so much? Paul says in Romans 8, 7 and 8 that the Mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the world are at enmity with God, they are held captive by their sins, and they love to sin. And they're not going to be happy with people who stand opposed to what they support, and those who live in such a way that contradicts the very things that they hold dear and Jesus warned us about this in Luke twelve, fifty-one to 53, when he says, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members will be in one household. They will be divided, three against two, and two against three. They'll be divided, father against son, and son against father, daughter against mother, and mother against daughter, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And so we need to count the cost up front And recognize that loving Jesus and obeying him are things that are going to cost us the the favor, the good opinions of the world. Jesus never told us that it would be otherwise. In fact, he said in the Olivet Discourse, you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And so we have to count the cost up front. But the good news is that if we count the cost rightly, we'll recognize that it's easily worth it to follow after Christ. If we're counting the costs rightly, we will see the loveliness of Christ. We'll see who he is and what he has done for us. We'll see the great reward of of following him. This is why the writer to the Hebrews can talk about Moses in uh, in Hebrews 11, that he was not willing to be counted as the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but counted it greater riches to be with the people of God. And he left behind the treasures of Egypt. For the, for the greater riches and treasures that were held out to him. If we count the costs rightly, we're going to recognize that this world as it stands is spiraling out of control and spiraling to its death. And so John says in 1 John 2.17 that the world is passing away as also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So there's, there's plenty of opposition. Satan will oppose us too, but if we but reckon things rightly. If we see the loveliness of Christ, we see how lovely He truly is, how worthy He is of our love and our obedience, and we will love Him. And in loving Him, we will gladly give our all to serve Him. And so are you loving Christ today? Are you obeying Him today? It's good questions to think about. And this brings us then to our second point, which is, be encouraged by the promises. Be encouraged by the promises. Notice here in these, these words of Jesus in verses 15 through 24, the numerous encouraging promises that he gives. He doesn't simply say, if you love me, you'll obey me. I'm out of here. Goodbye. He doesn't, doesn't do that at all. Again, Jesus, as we said, has a relationship with these men. He wants to encourage them. He wants to strengthen them. And so he gives them great and precious promises in order to cheer them and encourage their hearts as they face the the clouds that are out there on the horizon, right? There's been some disturbing discussion that's already taken place. There are disturbing events that are about to take place. And so Jesus wants to help them along the way. And so he gives them, in verses 16 and 17, the promise of the Holy Spirit. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever, that is the Spirit of Truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Jesus promises here that the disciples will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of truth because he testifies to the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. And Lord willing, as we go further in the the Upper Room Discourse in chapter 15 and chapter 16, we'll consider more of the work of the Spirit as Jesus tells us about the works that the Holy Spirit will do. And so, Lord willing, we'll consider that in, in future weeks. But notice what Jesus tells us here about the Holy Spirit in just verses 16 and 17 alone. Jesus calls him another helper. The King James Version rendered the word as, as comforter. It could also be translated as counselor or advocate. Indeed, it is. The same word that John uses of Christ himself in 1 John 2 1, when he says, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, and so he promises them another advocate, another comforter, another counselor. He promises them the gift of the third person of the Holy Trinity, who is co eternal and co equal with God the Father and God the Son. And that this third person of the Trinity would come to them and strengthen them and encourage them and comfort them as they set about serving Christ after Christ had gone away from them. That's what he'd been telling them, that he was going away and they could not come with him. The Holy Spirit was the helper who would be with them forever. Jesus was only present in his uh, earthly body with the disciples for three years or so. But he says that this other helper would be with them forever. He says that the world could not receive the Spirit because it did not see him or know him. They could not accept the truths to which the Holy Spirit would bear witness. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now, obviously, this All changes when someone is born again, when they are born from above or born of water in the Spirit, as Jesus said to Nicodemus. At that point, the the eyes of the heart is open to the truth of the gospel because the Spirit of truth has revealed it to them and has made it plain to their hearts. But until then, until that takes place, those who are still in the world and not in Christ cannot receive the Spirit. They have not seen Him. The Holy Spirit, of course, is invisible, and they do not know Him. They do not believe in him nor in the truth to which he bears witness. But Jesus said that the the disciples did know him. They had already been born of the Spirit so as to believe in Christ. And indeed, all of the, the people of God in the Old Testament times had been born of the Spirit. How could they have become the people of God without the working of the Holy Spirit? Our innate Depravity shuts us out from God and is not overcome except by the work of the Holy Spirit. And are we to suspect that the Old Testament saints were somehow less depraved than we are? Not at all. They too had the need of the work of the Spirit so that they might believe and that their faith might be credited to them for righteousness. And thus Jesus can say even before the day of Pentecost that the disciples knew the Spirit because he abides with them. And I think there is uh, something significant in the future tense there that's used at the end of verse 17 when Jesus says there that he who abides with you, he abides with you and will be in you. The Spirit was already, even before Pentecost, abiding with the disciples, but the Spirit would be, in the future tense, would be in them. And this speaks course, to the, the greater indwelling of the Spirit which would occur on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was not merely, not merely sprinkled but poured out upon the apostles and upon all who believed their message. The Spirit had already abided with them in a, in a limited sense, we could say, but on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit would be poured out and all of God's people would be filled with the Spirit. And this is encouraging. Was it not meant to be encouraging to the disciples? And therefore we ought to receive it as encouraging to ourselves. That we're, in other words, not left to follow Christ in our own strength. Christ has asked the Father, and the Father has sent the promised Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit indwells us as believers. He strengthens us and encourages us in our walk with Christ. He brings to mind the Scriptures. He convicts us of sin and brings us to repentance once again. How else does the Holy Spirit help us? Well, he intercedes for us, which is what we find in Romans 8 when Paul says that in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. And... It is by the Spirit that we put to death the misdeeds of the body. As Paul says in Romans 8, the Spirit helps us in our fight against sin. It is the Spirit who produces good works and good fruit in our lives. It is the Spirit who brings out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the helper which Christ sends to his people. This helper that remains with us forever, indwelling us forever and this is not the only promise that Christ gives to his disciples to encourage them. He says to them in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And what does he mean? Well, he goes on to explain. He says, after a little while, the world will not see me any longer. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you now what exactly does this mean when Christ says i will not leave you as orphans i will come to you different expositors have been inclined to go different ways in explaining the verses i i uh, tend to think that what jesus is speaking here is particularly of his post resurrection appearances to the disciples that he showed himself to them. And I think, I think if we think about the context and what Jesus actually says here, this makes perfect sense. Because the context is that Jesus is going away. Where he's going, they cannot follow him now. He's told them that the Spirit is coming. And as for Jesus himself, he says that he will not leave them as orphans, but that instead he will come to them. And indeed he did this after the resurrection. He says to them in verse 19 that after a little while, the world would see him no longer, but that they... His disciples would. When does this happen? Well, it seems to happen after the resurrection. For after he was raised from the dead, Jesus did not show himself to the world, but he did show himself to the disciples. Peter said it this way as he was preaching to Cornelius in Acts 10, 40 and 41. He said, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all people, but to witnesses, who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And so Jesus showed himself to the disciples, to the witnesses, to the 500 and so on, but not to the world. And then, beginning at the resurrection, the minds of Jesus' disciples began to be open to the great truths which Christ had Demonstrated to them. And so Jesus says here in verse 20, he says, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Now, it's not that they understood absolutely everything on that first Easter Sunday. They certainly did not. But that was the time at which their understanding began to be opened in a greater way. And I think this, this period between the, the resurrection and the day of Pentecost, their minds were opening, and even, and even beyond that, in the early chapters of the book of Acts, their minds were still being opened to the truth. And so consider what, what the scripture says. In John 2.22, we find that uh, after Jesus was raised from the dead, the disciples finally understood that saying that Jesus had said to them when he said, uh, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. John 2.22 tells us that after his resurrection, they remembered these words that he had said and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. We find a similar statement in John 12.16 about how the disciples did not really understand what was happening on Palm Sunday as Jesus was, was placed on a donkey and rode into Jerusalem. But, John tells us, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to them. They remembered, Zechariah, behold, your king comes to you, O Zion, gentle, and riding on a donkey. It was when Jesus was glorified that the light bulb came on. And like, wait a minute, oh yeah, we did that to Jesus. We put him on a donkey. He rode into Jerusalem just like Zechariah said he was going to. The point is that the pieces started coming together for the disciples after the resurrection, stretching on through the period to when Jesus was glorified, when he ascended to the Father, and then surely even through the period of Pentecost as well, when the Spirit who had been with them began to indwell them. Indeed, Jesus could go on to speak, as he did in John 16, verses 12 and following, of the fact that he had more to say to them than they could receive at the moment. But that when the spirit of truth came, he would guide them into all truth and their minds would be opened. They would learn the full truth. The process was slow. It wasn't instantaneous. But nevertheless, they learned and they grew. And even sometime after Pentecost, it took a vision and a meeting with Cornelius for Peter and other Jewish Christians to come to a full realization of how God was going to incorporate Gentiles into the plan of salvation and grant repentance unto life to them also. But nevertheless, the the door to this great knowledge began to, to swing open with Christ's resurrection when he appeared to his own and not to the world. And so that had to be encouraging to them, that Christ is not going to leave them as orphans. He would come to them. And then he says in the latter half of verse 19 that because he lives... They would live also. Our Lord Jesus Christ has life in himself as the eternal Son of God, and because He raised himself from the dead, the disciples and all who believe in His name will have life as well. It is by virtue of His resurrection that all who believe in Jesus have spiritual life and eternal life. So Romans 4:25 tells us that Christ was raised for our justification. 1 Peter one three tells us that it is through Christ's resurrection that God in His great mercy has caused us to be born again. And indeed, Paul speaks in Ephesians 2 of how God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. Indeed, as Jesus says here, because He lives, His disciples too will live. This also had to be encouraging. And their knowledge of the truth would be grown and would be confirmed. Jesus says in that day they would know that he is in the Father and that they were in him and he in them. They would grasp more fully the reality of what Jesus had been saying all along that he is one with the Father. They would come to see more clearly also their own union with Christ that Christ lives in them and that he dwells in their hearts through faith and not only that but that they also are in Christ. Christ is not only in them, they also are in him. Their lives were hidden with Christ in God. Do you not see how in all of this, Jesus was seeking to strengthen and encourage these disciples? He didn't want their hearts to be troubled, despite all of the things that could potentially disturb them as they were there in the upper room. And so he spoke these words of encouragement and comfort to them. Now what about us? Obviously, we're not them. That being the case, the specific promise of seeing Jesus after his resurrection does not pertain to us, right? There were specific appointed witnesses, the apostles, the 500. None of us are them. But in their own particular way, the rest of these promises do belong to us. We, too, receive the spirit of truth. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. As we find in Romans 8 9. For us too, it is equally true that because Christ lives, we also live. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we find in Romans 6, 3 and 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We too have the knowledge that Christ is in the Father and that Christ dwells in us and that we also dwell in Christ. All who belong to Christ can say with the Apostle, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 All of us who are in Christ live daily in the reality of what Jesus spoke in verse 23 when he said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And therefore John says in 1 John one three that what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We know the blessings of peace with God through Christ. The Holy Spirit indwells us and is conforming us to the image of Christ. Jesus intended these words to be encouraging and comforting. And so if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, then you, should, you too should be encouraged by these great realities of which Jesus spoke. And indeed, these realities and these promises should make the loveliness of Christ all the more clear. Right? To, to love someone is to see their loveliness And to set our affections on that person. And seeing these promises, the loveliness of Jesus should be all that much more clear to us. And so be comforted, be encouraged if you are a Christian this morning. Be reminded afresh of the work of the spirit of truth within you. The indwelling of Christ within you and the new life that you have because Christ lives. And then in turn allow these good and encouraging truths to direct your heart to love Christ. The old hymn writer said, Then shall my latest breath whisper thy praise. This shall be my parting cry my heart shall raise. Still all my prayer shall be. More love, O Christ, to thee. Love to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. Now if we thought about these great realities that we see in these verses, if we thought on them more than we do, and if we pondered the implications of these truths, wouldn't we, wouldn't we all... Love Christ more. And in seeing his loveliness, wouldn't we want to keep his commandments? When we understand what Christ has done for us, that his commandments really are for our good, then his commandments are not burdensome, but they become the joy and the delight of our hearts. And so then by strengthening of the Holy Spirit, walk with Christ in love and in obedience to his commands. is worth it, and you will never regret it. And if you're here this morning and you have never yet begun to follow Christ, then let today be the day. I've tried to speak to you of the loveliness of Christ, how good and kind he is and all that he has done for those who trust in him. He has come to save you from your sins, from your rebellion against God, which will condemn you for all of eternity if you do not come to Jesus for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. This morning the way is open. Come to Jesus. He is the way. If you have any questions about what this means, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about Christ and about what it means to follow Him. And there is nothing that we would love so much this morning as to see you trust in Christ. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank You for Your kindness and Your mercy to us. We pray that You would stir our hearts up to see just how wonderful and how excellent Christ is. We ask your forgiveness that we do not esteem him more highly than we do. We pray, Father, that our thoughts and our estimations of Christ would be be framed according to the glorious truths which you have taught us in your word. We pray that you would build us up today, that you would strengthen us. We praise you for the greatness of the encouragement of your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us we would obey you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.